Have you ever stopped to think that virtually everything we use in our daily lives is based on technology? Even further, do you understand the software behind this technology? Welcome to The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. In today's program, you'll hear how software is created and implemented, why it's written the way it is, and learn from its success stories, proven best practices, and significant failures. Now, here is your host, Martin Lacey. Good morning and welcome to The Art of Software. On today's show, we're actually coming full circle in our uh, 13 series segment. Um, this being the final show in uh, of 13, we're going to continue on doing them for, uh, for another year, of course. But this uh, finishes or completes a, uh, a cycle of thought. And so today, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, software as a business. And we've got uh, a really awesome guest today I'm really excited to talk to. It's uh, Luke Keynes, who's the founder of Puppet. And uh, he's brought that company up from inception uh, into its, its current uh, very strong uh, and successful business. And now he's uh, a bit uh, walked away from that, um, but is still involved, of course. And so we're going to get a chance to talk to, uh, to talk to Luke and find out about his uh, uh, what how he grew the business um, and where he really wants to help. Uh, he's part of uh, the software industry and he's now becoming more and more involved in helping businesses grow their ideas and helping people entrepreneurs dive into this uh, area this really exciting space of software development so with that in mind Luke welcome welcome to the show thank you very much for having me Martin it's a, such a great uh, um, opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, I wonder if you could tell everyone uh, how you got started, uh, what led up to the formation of Puppet, how you got to that that first point where you decided to start the company. Absolutely, and, and I hate to do this, but one small correction. My last name is Knees. I know it's, uh, it's frequently mispronounced, but uh, so no problem there. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, because we actually uh, had a conversation with the sound guy beforehand, and I wasn't too sure. Yeah, it'd be thank hard you, to Luke. find my website without having the, the correct, at least, you know, spelling and pronunciation. Um, <laughs> so I started Puppet in 2005, and prior to that, I had spent about five or seven years as a system administrator, I guess closer to seven and over the course of my my time as an admin, I moved from, you know, doing very tactical, simple work to realizing how boring that was and writing small tools to do the work to finding what other tools other people had. So rather than, you know, I kind of went, geez, I can't be the only person in the world who's got this problem. So I joined a community of other people who were writing and using automation tools and relatively quickly realized that none of the tools at the time were sufficiently simple to use that the wider market could use it. It's one thing to say, you know, oh, well, the top 10 or 20 sysadmins in the world can do this, or the top 200 could, but it's another thing to say, you know, all 500,000 sysadmins in the U.S. can use it, or, you know, all 5 million or whatever the number is. And when I was, uh, when I was realizing this, I, I was in Nashville, Tennessee, where my wife was getting her Ph.D., and I, there weren't that many good opportunities for a high-level sysadmin in Nashville. And I thought about other ways to change careers because I was kind of tired of being a sysadmin. Right. And I looked at going to law school, and turns out that going to law school is really expensive. So if you do that, you have to become a lawyer afterwards. And I just wanted the badge. I didn't want to actually become a lawyer. <laughs> and yeah. so essentially, I, I, I kind of pragmatically said, 
I'll probably learn more from failing to start a software company than I will from anything else I could possibly trying to do. So my worst case scenario was still actually pretty good. And I looked around the room and I could see that, you know, I knew all 20 other people in the world who were researching this topic and all of them were academics and I could tell that none of them were going to start a company. And so I figured that I had at least a few years before any of them, any of the rest of them thought it was a good idea to go, go build a product, go build a company around any of their ideas. So you thought you had an edge right from the very beginning. Exactly. It's like, I wasn't the smartest person, but I was the only, I was the smartest person who was going to start a company. So that was good enough. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, you've got the idea and, you know, it's just taking that leap of faith. How did you, you know, jump into that? How did you like go from that? Okay. It looks like I've got a a problem with an idea to solve it. Lots of people are trying to solve this problem. But how do you take that and go, okay, now I'm actually going to start the company. I'm going to do it. How do you, like, get that? Good I, stuff. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was lucky. I had spent six months working at Blade Logic and commuting back and forth between Boston and Nashville. And it was really, really miserable. And so I quit. And so I was lucky enough to find myself without a job. And so I needed to do something. And, uh, you know, over the course of about a month, I went from, you know, geez, there aren't a lot of great options, you know, but I don't really want to start this thing to... I, I guess I might as well start this thing. And I'd done a lot of research. I'd been consulting for a couple of years before that. And I'd done a right. lot of a lot of basic R&D. I'd bit, built some small tools that were really useful. And I'd done a lot of, you know, hey, I've got this idea. What would it take to turn that idea into code? And so I had a, a bunch of the individual pieces. And yep. then it was just a question of, am I really going to do this? What does this actually look like? And, uh, you know, sitting down and starting the work. So around February, March 2005, I... You know, committed to full time working on it, and my wife was working on her PhD, so she didn't really even notice. And <laughs> within ten months or so, I had uh, I had my first paying customer. Wow! And was this just on your own, totally? Did yeah? I mean, I was I was the only person working on it. I did. Uh, I I was lucky enough to come from a strong community, so the the Lisa community, but also the config management community and the CF Engine community, where I had been involved heavily. All those communities were places where I, I I worked closely with people. So it wasn't like, you know, I'm sitting in a room by myself and I'm not talking to anybody else. I, you know, built an IRC channel. I built a mailing list. And I was able to pull people into those long before I had a commercial product. And even if they were just interested in hanging out and talking, it, it helped a lot figure out what I was doing, why I was doing it, who I was doing it for. And then as I went to look for customers, of course, having that group of people to pull from, whether it's directly being able to get them to pay me or it's uh, their relationships being what delivered the customer in the long run, uh, all that really helped in my sanity because I wasn't just sitting in a, one of my bedrooms by myself, but also helped in delivering a higher quality product faster and you know, getting, getting paid earlier. Yeah, so th- that seems to be a, a real uh, a key point. I think is you 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 really established your market base before uh, you 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 know polished off uh, your idea. You you seem to have created a community or joined communities and started a, a dialogue and finding out what others were were doing. Yeah, and and well, in the end, we ended up raising a ton of money at Puppet. It, we, 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 I was bootstrapped for four and a half years, and the first three and a half years of that, I was the only employee. So I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of energy getting it, and you know, there was never a point where you look back and you go, "All right, it's done." And and I remember distinctly, we were our version numbers were below one until one year. I kind of went, 
you know, that there's no obvious way to declare that your product is is production quality. And so <laughs> we've niched, reached one version one. Yes. Right. Well, at some point, actually, I didn't even do that. I just moved the decimal point. Right. Because people have been using it for so long. And I had this like zero dot two four dot whatever yes. thing. And it's <laughs> yeah. a, I think it was zero dot two five. And eventually I was like, you know, the next release, we're just going to call two dot six. And it worked and our customers, our, our, our community didn't mind it and it made sense based on how we're using it. It was, it was in production at the time. And so, uh, you know, that, that I hear phrases like polishing it off and it's like, well, it was never quite done. And even, even when I stepped down 18 months ago, they're all, you know, in a lot of ways, we were gearing up to do one of the largest changes we'd ever done as a company. It's certainly the largest change and some of the biggest and most important work we'd ever done as a company. And, and that's part of why it made sense for me to step out at the time. Uh, but, you know, great products can't rest. And, and so uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to talk about, you know, the, the points where it settled. But uh, certainly by two or three years in, it was obvious we had solved a problem people cared about. We'd solved it in a way that worked well for at least some part of the market. And people were getting a lot of value from it, right? People were already seeing that it was changing their work. It was changing their jobs. It was changing their job satisfaction. It was, you know, one of the things I care a lot about in the software that I build is not just do I solve the problem, but do I solve the problem in a way that helps you as a person, right? Because it's really the person that I care about. I don't actually care about the work, but you're, you know, what you're doing is the work. And what Puppet does is it takes the worst parts of the job as the, of the admin and it either makes them go away because it's automation or it makes them never occur in the first place. So a lot of the administrative jobs without automation are menial work and firefighting. But we Absolutely. make the menial work go away and then we dramatically reduce the error rate and we dramatically increase the amount of consistency across your organization. And that, again, materially reduces the, error, uh, the, the failure rates so you don't get all this firefighting, you don't get all these alerts. So now suddenly you go from being interrupted every 20 minutes, which is about what the data shows you're interrupted, to being interrupted once a day or twice a day. right? And that's a, that's a huge quality of life change for everyone who's using automation in the computer world. Well, the whole problem of task switching. I mean, people like to think that they're multitasking, but really they're just task switching. And with all the interruptions, you can't really, you know, keep focused and your head down to solve a particular problem. Um, and I think yeah, and the data so, actually shows it, that sysadmins interrupted every 20 minutes and it takes 40 to 60 minutes to recover from being interrupted. So by that data, a sysadmin is literally never, ever actually getting any work done. They're just responding to, to interruptions. Yeah, yeah, and uh, well, I, I think that that translates or that that is applicable in more than just a sysadmin's role. I mean, it, it, you, you look at throughout the business enterprise and anyone that isn't dealing with People directly as as their occupation, answering the phone or or help desk. Uh, who they're constantly task switching, so they're doing just surface level communications. If you're doing anything that needs to you know have some thought process, there's going to be startup time and and shut down time. And if you're having interruptions, you're never really going to get that depth. Yeah, Cal Newport has a great book called Deep Work that goes in depth about the importance of spending long unbroken amounts of time working on the hard problems in your life and what what kinds of disciplines you need to build into your into the patterns of your day and your week to be able to have that unbroken time and i and i think one of the one of the things that was most important about what we did is we enabled a, a whole class of people to have that unbroken time where previously they couldn't and you know really taking that concept and uh, applying it to yourself when you started this business, you, you mentioned that for the first year you're on your own and then you, uh, 
you you had your uh, cost, contact base, uh, you grew that, you got one customer after a year. Um, I, I'm sure that was a, a, a rage success, but fed back into into the the process. So, and then you mentioned that you had four years of funding. Um, did you go out and find an investor, or how how did that work? How did you get get the leverage to to add more people into it, or was it just based on that first customer's success? Yeah, we. The first hiring I did was three years in, and I, honestly, the the hiring was more about recognizing the situation I was in rather than being in a different situation. In truth, I could have hired somebody a year or two in, and I actually did. I hired a couple of developers, uh, and they didn't work out. And so I, I, I got pretty painful scar tissue and essentially gave up. I said, oh, well, well, you know, that didn't work. I hired these junior developers and junior developers. Well, one was a junior developer and one was a sysadmin who I wanted to convert into being a developer. And it just didn't work. And uh, within three months, there were each of them, and I, I didn't hire them at the same time, but within three months, they were out of the company. And rather than persevering, which is, you know, the only correlation to success is perseverance. It turns out if you quit, you don't win. And I, I just gave up. And that's the thing you should never do in the startup world. And so yeah. two years after that, I look up and I'm completely burned out. I've been working, you know, every day, every weekend. And, and not, you know, I, I did the math. I never actually worked more than about 70 hours a week. At 71 was the longest I could ever clock as actual work. I think a lot of people can say I spent 100 hours at the office this week. But very, very few people can say I got 100 hours of work done a week. There's a, there's a really significant difference <laughs> between the two. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And it, and it turns out that you know, coincidentally, around the time that I found out my wife was going to have twins, I, I realized how badly I was off. I realized I was burned out. And I also realized, oh, actually, I've got a real business now. I've got, you know, six figures in, in revenue that I can use to pay employees and I can hire senior people instead of hiring junior people. And so relatively quickly, I hired two other people into the company. And that was a big part of what allowed a lot more visibility. Suddenly, I'm not spread between every single role in the company. Suddenly, I've got more capacity. And a year after I brought those those two people in the company, so four and a half years after I started Puppet, somebody tracked me down at an event and said, hey, I'd like to give you money. And I said, well, that doesn't sound right. But <laughs> within a month but or I'll so, yeah. right, within a month or so, True Ventures had led the first investment into Puppet. So this, again, this is almost wow. four and a half years after I started the company that we've got this investment. But uh, it, was, it was a long, slow road. And the investment made a huge difference in terms of what we were able to do, obviously. And we grew from three people to 19 people within less than six months. So what were the roles that you filled first? I mean, I, I know you tried with a junior developer and a sysop, uh, a sysmin guy that you wanted to make into a, a developer, um, you know, refining and building the tools that you had envisioned. And then you left that for two years. And then you came back to the table and decided to hire. What were the roles for, for these folks? The very first person I hired was, well, the first person I hired was was essentially an assistant, an office manager, somebody who can help everything. Uh, okay. The second person I hired was an accountant, somebody who can manage and, and do all the financing pieces. And it was an hourly person. It wasn't somebody who was working full time. But we got super lucky with our third hire, and that was a salesperson. And we got lucky enough to hire, essentially, as soon as we got money, we moved from Tennessee to Oregon. And we got lucky enough to hire about the best sales leader in all of Oregon. 
And that made a huge difference. And now in, in a lot of cases, I don't recommend startups hire sales really early. It's really important that you understand who your customer is, what your product is, what you're selling to them, how you sell to them before you hire sales because sales is all about execution. And if you don't know what you're executing yet, then bringing salespeople in is a really bad idea because you start doing, it, it's really, really expensive. And you start doing all these things and you look back a year later, two, layers and, two years later and you go, we weren't ready. We, we did the wrong things because we started executing before we had the ground laid. In this case, though, I'd already earned you know, half a million, a million dollars in revenue total. And so we were ready to start selling um, and all we needed was capacity. And so this sales leader was able to, and of course he's a, he's a leader, not a doer, and, and he was able to do the work, but also really help us think about how to go about selling and how to get a bunch of uh, high quality deals signed. And then from there, at the same time, I started building out an engineering team. And, and honestly, it, it, it took me, I'm not an engineer by training. I'm self-taught at everything I've done, except for the, you know, I've got a science degree. But other than that, and I don't do science. So I'm <laughs> self-taught at everything else. And it, it turned out to be much harder to, I did a really bad job of building out our engineering team in the early day, days. I hired very smart, very capable people who yeah. I couldn't work effectively with. And it's not uh, against them or against me. It's just people work in certain ways and, and my style yeah. of working ended up being incompatible with nearly everybody I hired. And that was a really painful, miserable process for a long time. But uh, yeah, so we were, you know, half to two thirds engineering relatively quickly because that was always my goal. We were also, because we're open source business, we were pretty services heavy business too. So that was most of the, the, the swath of what we were hiring. Wow, this is this is incredibly interesting. I've got so many more questions for you, Luke. Uh, we're going to have to take a quick break, uh, and we'll come right back with Luke Kaniz. Is is did I get that right? Luke Kaniz. Kaniz. Luke Kaniz, uh, founder of Poppet. Uh, fantastically interesting guy. Lots of uh, great advice for us uh, entrepreneurs learning to grow and start a software business. So, with that in mind, we'll be back in a short few minutes with Luke Kaniz and uh, the art of software. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. 
Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Welcome back to The Art of Software. Today we're talking about how to start and grow a successful software business. And we've got one of the founders, or the founder from uh, Puppet Software, Luke Kinnies, uh, with us today. And he's helping us to understand the trials and um, exhaustion points and the success, success points in building a successful software business. And it's really quite exciting to have him on board today. Uh, we've gotten so far, talked about uh, how he in, it started the business, where the ideas came from, his first starting, his first uh, staffing levels, and uh, when he got to the permanent employees, and of course, funding. Um, so we touched basically on funding before our break, and you mentioned that you were actually approached. You didn't seek out funding. How, how did that work? Pretty well, actually. Uh, <laughs> so I had talked to investors before. I, I, I've always believed really strongly in the value in, in of building networks, of going to events. I ha- had a big part of how I grew up. It was speaking at essentially every tech event I could speak at. And I also knew that in 2005, there was a lot going on. The Web 2.0 was just coming out. And so I spent a lot of time in other communities trying to learn from them and also you know, trying to convince them that what I was doing mattered because they did not think infrastructure was sexy. These days, it's a lot easier to convince an investor that infrastructure matters a little bit. But back then, it was all consumer. And of course, these, all, these things all go in waves. And in the years that I had talked to investors, I met a lot of investors who uh, I liked. And I met a few investors who probably would have considered giving me money. But I never met any investor who both liked me and uh, who I liked and who would have considered giving me money. So I, I never seriously pursued raising funds because you know I was this guy out in Nashville working by myself, and they only you know these days it's a little easier to get investment away from their hometowns. But 10, 12 years ago, it was nearly impossible to get around if you weren't in the Bay Area. So I just kind of gave up. And by the time True Ventures tracked me down, uh, which was actually at an event, you know I was speaking at a, a Linux event, and they tracked me down and said, you know, hey, want to talk and um, by then, there wasn't a lot left to prove, right? And one, one of the big things investors always are asking about is, you know, oh, well, what are your proof points? And, you know, three and a half years in, I'm, I'm ramen profitable. I'm living off what I'm making. It, it, it's hard to say, oh, well, you haven't done enough. So that made it a lot easier for them to believe that what I was doing was real. And for me, uh, I did pretty strong diligence on True and had a lot of confidence that they were the right kind of investor for us. So, did they? Uh, how did the funding uh, work? Did, was it a structured funding? So that gave you a, a lumps towards a particular goal, 
Or no, it was a classic VC. It was it was kind of funny because they said, uh, "Well, we're going to do is we're going to write." And they initially offered a million and a half, and we talked them up to one point seven five. Because the way investment works is usually they want a certain percent of your company, and it's much easier to, for them to convince them to give you more money than it is to convince them to take less of your company. So, uh, so they ended up saying, "We'll give you one point seven five million dollars out of a two million dollar investment." And I said, "Wait, wait." what do you mean? How is it a $2 million investment if you're only giving me 1.75? And they said, oh, well, you know, you should go find other investors. And I was like, I don't know any other investors. Yeah. How am I going to do this? Yeah. So um, in the end, we were able to find another half million from an investor who was uh, really, really great and has been a huge asset to the company. But uh, I, I remember th- that that first feeling of, what are you talking about? I can't come up with another quarter million dollars. Um so, and it was a pretty classic investment. I mean, in most cases, people are essentially writing you a check for 20% of your company. And whether they write you a $500,000 check or a $100 million check, they still want 20% of your company. And the check size is almost entirely a question of how much they, you can convince them your company is worth. And, and there are lots of companies, if you're raising a first round of funding, uh, it's not insane. If you can convince somebody, it's not insane to, to look at talking to a company and saying, my company's worth $5 million and I want a million dollars, or my company is worth $50 million and I want $10 million, right? Like either one of those conversations is, ironically, it's not that hard depending on which investor you're talking to. Now, obviously, most investors won't value your company at $50 million out of the gate. Most companies aren't worth $50 million on that first round. But again, in a lot of ways, the venture capitalists have a business model they have to follow. And that model means I have to write a certain size check and I've got to get a certain percent of your company and that matters more than anything else. It so, sounds, it, 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 if it, you don't mind me interrupting, it also sounds that uh, they're hedging their bets in that they, they, they want to get another investor in there to, to affirm their investment. Oh yeah, so I wrote a piece recently that uh, called One Investor is Not Enough and absolutely there's this really strange uh, affirmation process that, that people go through. And part of it is that it's very rare for a company to only get one round of investment. And so if you raise your seed round, then you go and raise an A round and a B round, and then maybe, you know, you know we, Puppet, we ended up raising five rounds of funding. And wow. every round, you end up having to get a new investor. And this sounds really counterintuitive. And it's not literally every time, but it's sufficiently close to every time. It's, it's actually a really good business practice for investors to have a policy not to invest multiple rounds into the same company. And, and again, it sounds super weird, but, uh, but this article makes it, makes it clear why it makes sense, because, uh, and, I, and I can explain if you want, but um, so what ends up happening is every round you need a new investor, and because of that, they really need a lot of validation, right? So if you get yes. an investor who loves you, but no other investor in the whole world loves you, then the investor probably has wasted their money, because you spend that first round, and then you can't raise a second round, and your company goes bankrupt. So it's really important, baked into how they work, most investors rely on, you know, hey, I'll say yes if, if you can get other people to say yes. And it's a, it's a really perverse setup for founders because as a founder, I want to focus on building my business. I don't want my skill set to be raising money. But the investors are coming in saying, you have to prove to me you can raise lots of money before I'll give you anything. So you get all these contingent rounds and you have to get this like final keystone in place and it all sticks together. And if you don't get that keystone, guess what? You know, I know you thought you had $2 million in the bank, but two days beforehand. So I've talked to founders who days before a round is supposed to close or supposed to be at least signed, they find out actually all the investors are pulled out because they couldn't get this one keystone in place. So it's a it's a it's a it's not a terribly wow. fun setup. Yeah, that sounds sounds, you know, nail biting. 
Um, yeah. And, you know, to, to be approached with that carrot and then uh, be told that you need to all of a sudden start finding other investors where you weren't really prepared to be finding the first one that found you. Um, uh, how, how was that uh, as an uh, emotional challenge as well, as well as a technical challenge to shift you from focusing on the business and making technically it, it operationally successful and moving to, okay, now i got to worry about getting investors. I mean, how, how do you make that mind shift or were you, you know, uh, jumping willingness to jump right into that or how did you manage that? Thankfully, they, they didn't require that I, they, they were willing to close the deal without any additional investors and they, they did what it's called leaving the round open. So, you know, I had six months or something to find additional investors and that worked out. Th- that was fine. So it wasn't a question of, wasn't like some people find themselves where if you don't find that second investor, then the deal doesn't close. We, we had the cash in the bank. And I, I very distinctly remember sitting in a hotel one time as the, as the deal was closing. I was at another event, sitting in a hotel with some friends, and I ordered a glass of scotch that was more expensive than I had been able to drink in a long time. And I'm sitting there and I realize I'm having $1.75 million invested into a bank account that I have access to, which is far more money. Like I grew up super poor. It's far more money than I've ever considered having access to. And I realized that I've never actually met the bankers. And I don't, I, I think they're a real bank, but I don't actually have any evidence they're a real bank. I mean, I've been to their website, but I've seen con shows like Spanish Prisoner. And I know it's not that hard to build a website. And it's true that my bankers were introduced to me by my investors, and so it's unlikely to be a fraud. But I'm and I'm and I'm looping through this as <laughs> as I'm having as I'm slowly drinking my scotch, and I'm thinking, I hope that's a real bank, and I didn't just lose 1.75 million dollars of my investors' money. I'm sure it will all be fine. I'm just going to slowly drink my scotch and try to tamp down the panic. And then you know, after an hour or so, check the bank, and it, <laughs> the money's in there, and everything's okay, and everything's fine, and it's just like. Oh my God. And so that was a, that was a very, on the other side of that experience, you're a different person, right? You have different opportunities. You have different realities. You're just a completely different person. And, and you're right. You do end up having to switch a lot of what you do as a founder into thinking about raising money, thinking about problems beyond how do I build the best product? How do I find the right customer? How do I tell the right story? And to me, I think this is one of the major flaws in the venture capital model is that investor uh, founders end up spending three months out of each year fundraising because you have to raise almost every year. It's very rare to be able to raise enough money. And it's often a bad idea to raise enough money to last you multiple years. And at Puppet, we raised every year from 2009 to 2012. So 9, 10, 11, 12, four times in a row we raised yearly. And then we raised 18 months after that. And so I was out raising money every single year. And it took, wow. takes three months to close around usually. And it's not that that was the only thing I was doing for those three months, but you can bet yeah. it was the most important thing I was doing for that three months. So it, it is a significant shift in mindset. And it's it, it's this weird thing where it's not a skill set you want to have be your most important skill set, but it's also in a lot of ways the skill set that if you've decided to be on that track, it is the difference between your company going bankrupt and not. So it, it isn't a skill set you can afford to ignore or afford to let follow, let life follow. I, I totally understand that. I mean, uh, from a technical software application architect perspective, or from you know someone that wants to solve a problem, uh, you you really don't um, f- think in terms of trying to get 
money or get funding to try and grow your idea um, and, and help grow that business. It's you know, That whole idea of switching from being a technical solution guy to being um, really it's a, it's a marketing it's it's a it's a marketing uh, initiative where you're promoting and doing that live promotion of of your ideas that's that's a a real jump I think um, at what point did you think you had you, you you broke free from the the doing and making the the technology happen to being able to promote it and jump on the stage and tell people about it? Or were you doing this from the very beginning? I, I was doing it from the beginning, from, from day one. I, and, you know, I, I remember when I was probably 23 or 24, I was working at a company that bought another company out of Philadelphia. And I went to visit that company in Philly. And, and one of the leaders of that company we bought made a comment that was along the lines of, you know, look, I can always tell when a company's going to succeed and it has entirely to do with their sales and marketing and has nothing to do with their technology. If they've got great sales and marketing, they'll do fine. And if they have bad sales and marketing, they're going to die no matter how good their tech is. And mm. I remember being mortally offended and just thinking, this guy is so freaking stupid. And <laughs> fi- within five years, uh, now I can't agree with that opinion. I think bad products do tend to lose and especially in the modern era, like things have changed a lot since 2005. But it's also fair to say that I got really good at, I, I clearly recognized how important the story was and I clearly recognized how important it was to get the, to get the word out. And, and when I started Puppet, the, the goal wasn't, I had lofty goals. They weren't about making money. They weren't about building a huge, massive company, but they were about having an impact. And when you look right. around and you realize like, sysadmins are grumpy, grumpy people. How <laughs> am I going to reach all these grumpy people? Where, where do these people hang out? And so Where's your sweet spot? <laughs> right. I spent a lot of energy trying to find them. What are you doing? Where are you doing it? How can, I, how can I go spend time with you? So a big part of my strategy was going to events. A big part of my strategy was finding communities and joining communities. And once you're there, you got to tell the story, right? There's no one else, right? You look around the room and it's like, well, if I want you to use this product, there's really only one person who can get you to do that. And it's me. So I had to learn how to tell the story. And for all that, I'm, you know, I had to, today I'm a much better speaker than I was then. At the same time, I did basically build Puppet on the back of going to events and speaking at events. And I would go, while I wasn't on stage, I would, I would never attend another talk. I would spend the entirety of the event in the hallways hustling tracking down people, sit next to people, ask them what they do. And, and it wasn't putting a hard sell on people trying to even say, hey, go buy my product. It was help me understand your product. Help me understand, sorry, help me understand your job. Help me understand what you do. Help me understand the problems that you have. You know, have you looked at any other products? Do you use any automation today? So spend a lot of time pulling information from people. And people, it turns out, love to talk about themselves as I am now. And as they talked more about their problems, they began to realize that you understood their problems really well. And they would say, you know, and you'd say, do you use any of the products? And they would go, no, do those things exist? And you go, oh, yeah, there's three or 40. Have you tried this one? Have you tried that? And they go, no, I haven't tried any of those. And then you say, well, you know, have you tried, have you tried Puppet? And they go, I never heard of that. And then you, you know, I, w- I would walk them through how to, how to get it started. And so that was a big part of how I, how I built the company. And from there, you know, they join your IRC channel, they join your mailing list, and then, you know, that builds over time. They tell their coworkers, they tell their friends, they leave that company, they go to another company, but it was always critical to be able to tell the story, and I always knew that. Now, telling the story to a potential user is not quite the same thing as telling the story to a potential investor, because the investors aren't sysadmins. They don't know what the life of a sysadmin is like, so you have to find a way 
to educate potential investors on who your customer is, why, why, they, why they matter, because most people don't think sysadmins matter. From the first day, we were told developers are who matter, sysadmins don't matter. And today you're yeah. told the same thing. Oh, developers are the new kingmaker. I can find you articles in the 90s during the dot-com bubble where they say developers are the new kingmakers, right? That story's never changed. Sysadmins have never mattered. And you know, we, we, we were a huge part of help of helping to fix the narrative to say, sysadmins do matter. The, the IT teams, the operational teams, they do matter. And we helped invent DevOps. We helped build that whole movement around, let's make operations a strategic asset instead of this tactical liability. But that was all necessary. Part of it was necessary to help change what my customers could do, but a huge part was necessary to get the industry and the investors to take us seriously. Well, I, and I think they take you seriously by the service, by the capabilities that you're, you, the, the vision of what you're trying to en- enable. And I think that's a, the, <coughs> excuse me, the, the real big picture here is that you were solving a significant problem in the evolution and deployment of software and helping businesses grow to that next level. So the the, the idea of trying to, you know, build a business based on these uh, just just the sysops demands. I, I think once you start talking to the business, did you see business people coming at this and going, well, hold on, this really applies to a much greater scale than just managing deployment of software. I can see this, you know, moving this throughout the enterprise. Is that, uh, did you have conversations of that nature? Absolutely. You know, in general, I was always very, very user focused. I didn't work hard to sell to the business. And there are arguments to be made that I worked hard not to sell to the business. I think that products that are focused on selling to the business business buyer over the actual user tend to become crappy software pretty quickly. But, uh, you know, I, I always knew there was a strategic opportunity and, and that success for Puppet was that everyone in your organization is relying on it as opposed to just uh, just your admin teams or just a couple of people in a corner. Yeah, because I can definitely see how it'd be a much easier sell on the technical aspect. I mean, sysadmins, um, you know, as you say, they've been, um, you know, neglected aspect of, of making the business operate. And I, from my perspective, they're the operational hinge that, that make some of the great software possible. Um, with that in mind, we've got to take our final break Luke, and we'll be back shortly and we'll continue on with our discussion of building a great business and how to nurture it and make it be the success and greater than you even envisioned from the very beginning. So with that in mind, (laughs) thank you very much, Luke. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
In this fast-paced, technologically driven world of business, the stress can be crushing. It's exhausting business leaders and burning out good employees. It is not enough to work from the top down. We must now learn to work from the inside out. Listen to Innovative Mindful Solutions with Terry Geller. We will discuss ways to transform roadblocking emotions using mindful-based tools you can incorporate into your business and your life right now. Don't stress. Tune in every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Moving forward can be difficult to do sometimes. There is always something going on. Many times, nobody else knows exactly what you're going through. If you are experiencing pain or loss, even something unexplained that is missing in your life, you'll want to tune into Go For It with host Joe Hausman. Joe and her guests will show you laughter and love. Sometimes you just need something a little positive in your week. Make that spot Thursday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Welcome back to The Art of Software. We're talking today with Luke Kniss of former or a founder of Puppet. Uh, we're talking about how he managed to start this business, create it from an idea, uh, seeing the need and addressing that need and scaling it up. We've talked about how he grew the business, how he added people, how he got the funding and deciding what kind of funding sources was right for his business. And of course, uh, growing the business um, and marketing the business, which is a, a big aspect of of making a company successful. Not only do you have to have solid technology, you have to have a really good marketing message. Of course, there's companies or software out there that isn't very good, but has an incredible marketing message and gets purchased anyway. Um, but this isn't the case with what Puppet has produced. They've got some fantastic software solving a real problem. And with that uh, you know, in mind, we're going to continue on talking with Luke and talk about how we've managed the growth of this technical software business. So, Luke, can you tell us how, how, how did you grow your teams? You mentioned that your, your technical teams um, at first were... Um, uh, weren't quite fitting with with how you socially wanted the company to grow or within your own dynamic. How did you resolve that? Man, this is this is a this is a really hard topic. I I think one of the entrepreneurs are weird, right? It, it's not when somebody decides to start a company. In most cases, now this isn't always the case. You you often find, you know, people who are MBAs, people who have been successful their whole lives and have and have essentially, you know. We're, we're born in a somewhat privileged position and continue seeing success their whole lives. They go to great schools, they graduate from great schools, they get an MBA from great school, and then at that great MBA program, they meet some other great people, and those great people go on and start a company, and, uh, and, they, and they do really well. And these people tend to be um, 
abnormal entrepreneurs. Uh, most entrepreneurs are, are weird and broken in different ways, and they're really bad employees. They're not people who could work for somebody else. And, uh, and certainly when I started Puppet, a big part of why I did that was because I wasn't going to do a good job of working for somebody else. I tried it a bunch of times, and I either had been fired. I had seven jobs in two and a half years out of college. Or, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, they either fail, fail to work for somebody else or they can't tolerate working for somebody else. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I certainly had that problem. And, and as I added people, one of the constant challenges is you recognize that you're different and weird and broken in some ways. And when you hire people who are obviously successful, capable, and smart, when you can't work with them, is it because you're broken or is it because you have failed to hire the right kind of person? And it's, it's, easy, it's, it's easy to have glib answers to this question, but glib answers are rarely correct answers. And the, 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 kind of, the short answer to how I solved this was I struggled with it for my entire time at Puppet. I, I never stopped wrestling with this problem. I never stopped struggling and frequently failing at hiring people who could both get the job done, but also work, effect, work effectively with me. And, and honestly, it was only as I decided to step down, and because I stepped down, I had a lot more sense of freedom, that I began to be much more comfortable saying, I don't care how good you are at your job. If you can't work effectively with me, you've got to get out. And uh, I, I wrote an article uh, about this time last year called The High Cost of Fitting In, where I, I go into detail, on, I don't go into detail exactly, but I tell the story of how expensive it was for me to try to act like I thought society wanted me to act and then right. how much better my decision making was when I said, you know what, rather than try to do that, rather fail on my own terms than try to succeed any longer on somebody else's terms. Um, and that post plus all the other posts that I, that I, that I published you can find on creatively lukekinese.com and uh, it's, it's, again, it's from a year ago, so you'll have to scroll back a ways to find it, but it was, it was a really important experience to realize how, how much harder my life was because I was trying to do what I thought other people needed me to do versus just saying, you know, look, whether it's good or bad, I'm the CEO, I'm the person you have to fit in with, and if you can't fit in with me, you're at the wrong company. Um, and engineering was the hardest place to do this because I knew I didn't fit in as an engineer. I, I, I knew I didn't write code that other people could maintain. I, in all of my years of hiring, I found two people who could successfully and comfortably maintain code that I wrote. And that doesn't make me a genius. It doesn't make me an idiot. It just means that my code is written in a way that works great for my brain and, and, what, and for nearly no one else's. And, and that has real consequences. And so a lot of what I had to do was recognize that everything I had done had to be thrown away. And so I set targets for like, hey, the percent of the product that is mine needs to go down over time. And when we look up in a few years, there needs to be not any, any of my code remaining anymore um, because it's so hard for the rest of the team to maintain. So that, it, it, was, that... it was always a problem. That's a, that's a really interesting eye opener. How did you feel about that? I mean, from a personal perspective, you know, knowing that you're replacing all of your hard work with someone else's hard work, but you've you know you supplanted your your role as more of a operational executive, uh, overseeing that that replacement of your hard work. What was that like? I mean, it was it wasn't even in the top ten of painful decisions I made as a CEO. So. Uh, you know, being a CEO really, really sucks. Being a founder is really, really hard. And the amount of misery you have to put yourself through in so many different areas makes decisions like a lot of the actual code that I wrote has to go away. Um, not that painful. And, and, and honestly, look at the alternatives, right? So 
when I started hiring engineers, I had you know, maybe 130,000 lines of code that I had written. And, okay. and it's all in Ruby, and it's all, I'm, I'm, I'm a heavy meta programmer. So, you know, why, why write a program if you can write a program that generates a program? And why write that right. program if, you know, and I used metaprogramming and reflection and all that stuff massively throughout Ruby. And, and that's a big part of what made it complicated for other people. So you start hiring engineers. You got a team of, you know, initially 10. And then at some point, you know, when I left, we had 250 engineers, right? So what, you've got three options, right? One, over time, they replace all the code that I wrote. Two, over time, they don't replace all the code that I wrote. And all the code that I wrote is still running at the heart of Puppet. Three, over time, I'm writing a bunch of new code, and I'm still responsible for maintaining key parts of the core of our product, right? Hmm. <laughs> Which one of those do you pick, right? Well, so, I think you picked the right one. <laughs> right? So, in truth, any choice other than all of the code that I wrote gets replaced over time is pathological, right? It's yeah. actually bad for everyone. And the only thing that was different is that my code was really, really hard to replace, <laughs> So, you know, but you had to, though. I mean, it, it became, and, and perhaps, a, you know, another twist on that, it's, it's a learning, um, uh, a, a learning, a place of learning for all your engineers as well. So they have a, a starting point um, and say, okay, well, that's V1, V2, or V3. Let's, you know, take that idea and, and rewrite it from scratch, perhaps, and uh, see if we can, you know, squeeze out uh, some really optimal design ideas. Is that something that that occurred? Yeah, I mean, honestly, th there were enough key components, enough places that uh, everything was tried. Right, different teams would attack different problems in different ways. Um, different pieces would get peeled off and done differently. Um, so there, there was a, there were many different opportunities to to do things differently. Um, and you know, and to be honest, they haven't. There still are parts of it that are. Uh, chunks that I still know better than everybody else. They just haven't yet been replaced because it hasn't been a high enough priority. Because one of the things you have to do in any company is, you know, and, and obviously anybody who's, who's worked in code knows this, you know, we, we used uh, derogatory terms like technical debt, but there are yeah. parts of the business that you can't afford to ignore any longer. And there are parts of the business where you say, you know, look, it's going to cost us a lot of time and it's going to introduce a lot of risk to change that part of our software. And it's not worth putting the time in or it's not worth taking that risk right now. There are higher value things we can do. And so you end up being having to be pragmatic because it turns out being pragmatic is intelligent. Right. And it's kind of like the applying the 80-20 rule, right? You do 80% exactly. of the work with 20% of your effort. And that last 20%, which takes 80% of your effort, um, you know, measure it out uh, judiciously and, you know, do it when you think it is the best time to do it. Exactly. Um, and I just want to take a, a, a retake on this and make sure everyone caught your um, your website address for all the blogs that you've done. That's lukekenise.com, L-U-K-E-N-I-E-S.com. Uh, there's a lot of K great... K-A-N-I-E-S. L-U-K-E-K-A-N-I-E-S.com. If you search for Luke and Puppet on the internet... I'm I'm pretty easy to you know, you can find my name pretty easily and figure out, you know, all the different things that I've done. Excellent. Yeah, the, there's uh, I've only read you know uh, ten or fifteen articles in there, but every single one of them is is a real gem. So I'm I'm, I'm really grateful for for all your effort in helping entrepreneurs and understanding um, how to grow and make a business happen. Um, when you started uh, Puppet, you know, there's there, there there's a lot of uh, 
documentation, people writing about uh, businesses and what you think about when you first start a company is, you know, you need to consider your exit strategy. Is that something you did when you started Puppet? So this is a complicated question. I, I, part, of the, part of the reason why this comes up is that investors ask it. They say, what's your exit strategy? And investors right. have a weird definition of exit strategy because what they actually mean is, what is your strategy for my exit? Because an investor can only own your shares for seven to 10 years because they've got a fund and that fund gives you money and owns some part of your shares and they need to oh. sell those shares and then distribute the money to their investors within seven to 10 years. And they Gosh. honestly don't, don't care that much how you turn their shares into cash. But in practice, there's only two ways to do that. You can sell your company or you can go public. And if you sell your company, obviously all the shares get exchanged for cash. And if you go public, then they can sell your shares on the public market. And it's important to understand this. If you go public within 18 to 24 months, all the shares that your investors own will get distributed to their investors who will then sell your shares immediately because their investors aren't high-risk technology stockholders. They're low-risk pensions and things like that. Institutional investors. Right. And so when they say you need an exit strategy, they mean you need a strategy for them to exit their shares. But again, in practice, you either sell your company or get bought. And, and again, I have an article about this called when you take venture capital, you're forcing your company to exit. Um, so there's, that's, that's one piece of it. And, and my theory on this is great companies don't have exit strategies. Your target in building a company should be to build a great company. And if that okay. means you get bought later, or if that means you go public, that's great. You're going to have to tell a story to an investor about how, what you mean by great company and how you're a great company. In general, if you want to go public, you've got to, be hit, you've got to have 100 million in sales growing 30 to 50% a year. And so if you are thinking to raise venture capital, you have to be able to tell a story about hitting 100 million in sales, growing 30 to 50% a year. And if you can't tell that story, you shouldn't raise venture capital in general. Not 100% of the time, but in general. That's the story they want. And, and that's, what, that's what I got really good at telling that story. Um, when you, when you, the way you ask the question, it's kind of asking about my personal exit strategy. And, and, I, and again, I didn't have one. I spent a lot of time thinking, you know, uh, there's a great Arthur C. Clarke quote where he says, you know, there are times where I think there are other species out there in the universe, other inhabited planets. There are times where I don't. And I find both inconceivable. Well, <laughs> a lot of times where I thought, I look up in five years and I say, you know, there are times where I, I, I think I'll be running Puppet in five years and there are times where I don't. And I, and I find, found both inconceivable. It was really, really hard. Uh, and, I, mm. and I never, I, I never wanted bad decisions to be made. Uh, and I was, I was unwilling to be demoted. I told my board, look, you can fire me, but you can't, you can't turn me into the CTO. So if you don't want me at the CEO anymore, that's fine. But I refuse to step down into some other subsidiary role. And, and so that was constraints on what I was willing to do. But beyond that, I, I was just really focused on doing the absolute best I could, build the best company, be the best CEO. And I wanted, if I was going to fail, I wanted to actually fail. I wanted to, be, I wanted to make the best run I could and then fail rather than step down because things didn't look right or I didn't fit the mold or something like that. Wow, this has really been uh, an eye-opener for me, Luke. I, I'm, I'm really appreciative for you coming on the show today and you know, clearing up a few things uh, in my mind uh, on how to grow a business and what that's all about and particularly what the exit strategy is because I, I hear that term a lot and really I, I, I kind of scratch my head thinking about uh, you know, how that could even be thought of when you're trying to build something. And, and actually, you know, try and make a difference in the world. Um, and as clearly as you have done and as your business will continue to do. I want to thank you very much, Luke, and uh, uh, for coming on our show and helping other entrepreneurs grow their business. 
Um, please, uh, if you're out there listening and wanting to learn more, take a look at Luke's um, uh, website and have uh, read through some of his uh, blogs, some of his articles. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us on The Art of Software. We'll be continuing on this show for the next year. Uh, we'll be exploring other avenues, other parts of business, but always about the art of software. So thank you, Luke, and thank you, everyone. Thanks for having me, Martin. Thank you for listening to The Art of Software. Be sure to join your host, Martin Lacey, again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week.